Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you, Father, for a home in this church. I thank you, Lord, for the men and women who have become dear friends and family. And we're united, Father, in the Spirit, and that gives us a, a connection that can't be replicated in any other human way, Father. But it's uh, built on that and it is a, a true friendship and love and joy that makes it so special, Father, to come into this building and be part of this congregation. And you've done that in us, and you continue to do that. You mold people of different backgrounds. People, Paul says, were not wise, not noble. People, Father, who, who for their own, from their own point of view, from their own wi- uh, wisdom or knowledge, would never have found you. We could not find you seeking in this world as we do. And yet you revealed yourself to us, and you brought us together, and you made this body, and many more like it across the world. Each of these gatherings, Father, glorifies you, for it testifies to the power of of your spirit working in us to mold us into your likeness. And Lord, it is part of the mission that we would show the joy we know to the world so that we can encourage them to know you as well. And I pray, Lord, that's our heart, that our mission is never simply about enjoying each other. So I ask, Lord, you'd always give us an an outward-mindedness for who we want to reach. I thank you for men and women in this body who are already making that a part of our mission, doing whatever they can to speak to the world about Christ and your word. And Lord, we, we get this attitude, we take this view with us because of what we've learned in your word. And we come to your word as we do regularly, Father, because we know it is light, it is bread, it is the source of life, Father, it is who we've become. It teaches us not only about who you are, but who we are and who we need to be. And Lord, I, I ask as we open the Bible this morning, as we open the book of Judges, And as we study things that may perplex us, for it relates to people in in places distant from us. Nevertheless, Father, we know you have the power to take your word and to teach us in a personal way through your spirit. In words beyond any that I might use. And that's what we look forward to this morning, Father. Please teach us, preparing us for the mission to reach the world with the glory of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When we were last here in the book of Judges, we were looking at our latest judge, Jephthah. He now is the center focus for a short time in this cycle we've been studying in the book of Judges, in which Israel sins, Israel is punished by God for their sin under the covenant, Israel is eventually restored, and all that restoration is done through a judge of some kind, a man, or in some cases a woman, who has come along by God's decree to raise the people up out of their punishment and restore them for a time. And Jephthah is the latest hero in that line. Last time we saw him, if you remember, he was negotiating or trying to negotiate with the king of Ammon over who had the right to the land east of the Jordan River. This is the far eastern border of Israel. On the eastern side of the Jordan, Israel occupied a stretch of land down that side of the river as well. And it bordered the Ammonites. And the Ammonites had always been an adversary to the nation of Israel. And in this day, God has been using the Ammonites to punish Israel for their sins under the covenant, for their idolatry. So the Ammonites come across the border westward. They go into the land of Gad and into Gilead generally, and they begin to oppress them. Now God is ready to rescue Israel from Jephthah. And so what Jephthah tried to do to avoid war with Israel's neighbor was by lecturing this king on who was the rightful owner of the land. Do you remember? He goes through all the history of how Israel came in under Moses and Joshua and you know, trying to prove to this guy. And he had all these great arguments. And his rhetoric was top-notch. He just had an answer for everything. And yet, as we saw last time, his plan is doomed to fail. 
And the reason it's doomed to fail is because he's working against God's desires in this case. The Lord had brought the Ammonites up. We remember that, right? He brought them in as a punishment because of Israel's sin. Now, as the cycle has turned and we're moving from punishment to restoration, now the time has come for God to give deliverance. And his chosen method for delivering his people is to raise up a guy, Jephthah in this case, send him against the Ammonites, and defeat the enemy in battle in a way that testifies to the Lord's power so that the world can see the outcome and say, oh, God did that, look at that. Only God could have done that. A weak force defeating a powerful force. How often have we seen this already, right? Gideon did it. Uh, Deborah did it with Barak leading the charge and on and on. This has been the pattern. How much glory do you think, though, God is going to get if the answer came by means of a negotiation? One guy rhetorically defeating the other. Not going to result in a lot of glory, right? So this is not what God wants. He did not raise up a negotiator. He didn't ask Jephthah to make friends with the king of Ammon. He wants a captain to lead an army just as the past judges have done. So, as we read last time in verse 28, the king cared nothing for Jephthah's logic. And I'm just going to repeat that verse to remind you. He says, but the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. He had sent him this argument by way of a courier. And the king just threw it in the trash can. So at this point in the story, war seems inevitable, which is the way the Lord wanted it. There is certainly a time for God's people to seek peace with our enemies, uh, with our neighbors. Certainly Christ is expecting us to make as much of an effort as we can. He says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's our, our command, and we certainly want to live up to that command. But, friends, there is in Scripture times when God has declared that His people aren't to make peace. That isn't the goal. And when that is made clear to us, we cannot substitute our own desires for His. Peace is not always the highest goal. The highest goal is obedience to the Lord. Because there are times when conflict, and yes, even war, suits God's good purposes better than peace and acquiescence does. And in the end, we are called to obey God's word, not second-guess His instructions. Now, I certainly don't expect that He's going to ask the New Testament church to go to war as a community. That's not how God is working in these days. But in Israel's day, when He was running one nation on earth, surrounded by enemies, and He was intentionally putting them into conflict for good purposes, yes, then in that time, God certainly had good reason to tell His people to go to war. When they didn't, they're disobeying Him. It's pure and simple. So now that Jephthah's plan has failed, it's time for the Lord's plan to go into action. And you begin to see now what the Lord's counsel is by virtue of what his spirit does through Jephthah. Verse 29. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through the Gilead of Manasseh. Then he passed through Mitzpah of Gilead. And from Mitzpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you indeed will give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Well, it begins simply enough, the Lord brings the Spirit upon Jephthah. The Spirit's power, the Spirit of God here, the Holy Spirit, you could say, have come, His power, His direction, His wisdom as it's imparted to Jephthah, all of that is now what's responsible for the sequence of events that follow, at least in the case of verse 29. So that tells us the Lord is working here towards some outcome. He specifically, through His Spirit, is giving Jephthah the plan and the courage to go through with the plan. 
But the fact that he comes upon Jephthah here and now in this way suggests he wasn't already there, right? It suggests something new has happened. This reference, and there's many others like it in the Old Testament, these references of the Spirit coming upon a person like you see here, this demonstrates to us that the work of the Spirit in this age, in the time of these events, is different than what we know today in the New Testament church. That in this day, the Spirit did not come as a permanent indwelling in the life of every saint or believer, as we would say. Rather, he came for a time, and he came for a purpose. And then later, he would, in many cases, depart, just as God had determined. Now, that departure is not an indication that the Spirit disapproved of the person, or that the person was no longer a child of God, or no longer saved by faith. That's not the intention of an Old Testament visitation of the Spirit. Because the ministry of the Spirit in that day was different than the way he ministers to the people of God today in the church. In these days, we say the New Testament church or the New Covenant, the Spirit is given as not only the instrument of faith as he was in the old, but beyond that now, his ministry involves a permanent indwelling of all children of God at the moment of faith, as Paul describes in various places, including Romans chapter 8. The Spirit, Paul says, is the seal of our faith. You know, a seal in the, in the days when men used to write with quills and ink, etc., and they used to have a parchment paper, and then they'd have to seal it up in a way that protected the contents so that only an authorized person could see it. The document would be closed often with wax, dripped along the seam, and then the person's ring, their authority, would be impressed into the wax to indicate who the author of this was, to put authority into the letter, and you wouldn't break that seal unless you were approved to break it. So only by God's power could the Spirit ever leave us, which is to say, according to His Word, He will never leave us nor forsake us. So the Spirit, once deposited, is a permanent indwelling made so by God's power. That's why we say the church stands apart from the rest of the saints of history in that we have this very special ministry of the Spirit, which did not exist prior to Pentecost, the beginning of the church, and, according to Scripture, will not exist after the church either, that the, the saints who come to faith in the time of tribulation, following the removal of the church, they will have had the Spirit's influence to come to faith, all men must, but they won't have the permanent indwelling of the Spirit, as we have known. So in this moment, as we read in chapter 11, the effect of the Spirit's arrival upon Jephthah was purposeful, God intended it to have a purpose, and it was to fill this man with bold courage and with clear understanding of God's desire, so that he couldn't get it wrong. The Spirit leads him north, we're told here, along the border, between the places of Gad and Manasseh. This is along the Jordan River Valley, so if you have a general idea of the geography, you know there's that river running north to south from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and it divides several tribes up and down that span, north to south, He's moving through that river valley, bordering Manasseh, bordering Gad, and then he eventually works his way back down into Gilead. Gilead is the whole land east of the Jordan River. Today we'd say Jordan, the nation of Jordan. What's he doing on this trek? Well, he's recruiting soldiers for his, his battle. He is picking up forces as he goes, preparing for a battle. By the time he comes back to Mitzpah of Gilead, he's got his army ready. Mitzpah of Gilead sits right on the frontier, right on the border between Israel in the west and Ammon in the east. So he's positioned himself there with his forces ready for the battle. And at this point, he should do nothing more than what? Go forward. Right? You don't need to say anything. You don't need to ask anything. You don't need to do anything. You've been given the spirit. You've got the plan. You've got the forces. You're in the right place. Go to battle. And he opens his mouth. The negotiator in him comes out again. 
Now, you remember what his name means? Jephthah? He opens. Opens in the sense of opens his mouth. Speaks too much. Talks too much. I can identify with this. And friends, this is one of those times when he gets into serious trouble with his mouth. Probably the classic one, the one that most people remember him for. The Lord had given him everything he needed for success. He had given him the Spirit, which obviously empowered and directed him into the right things. All that he had to do at this point is rest in that power of the Spirit, doing the work God had called him to do. But instead, he isn't content. And that's the first thing to understand. This is not just idle talk. This didn't just pop into his head because he was bored. He is working out of a heart that is not fully confident that he can serve in the Spirit, that he's prepared, that he's going to have success. And what does he do? He seeks additional assurance from God that what's happening is actually going to be successful. And so he decides to make a vow. Now, before we consider the vow, let's understand how God sees vows in Scripture. Beginning in Numbers, in Numbers chapter 30, verse 1, this is what the nation of Israel was told by God. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word, he shall do all according to that which proceeds out of his mouth. So God takes a vow seriously. Under the law, Israel was obligated to keep any vow they made to the Lord. And to fail to keep it meant that the Lord would require a penalty of the one who made the vow but failed to keep it. In fact, the penalty for failure to keep the vow was to suffer a similar payment as the one requested. So considering the way the Lord viewed vows, you might think that a Jew would be encouraged to think very carefully before ever making such a vow, right? To, to really double-check, is this necessary? And if I do it, can I follow through with it? Can I be assured that I can control my own circumstances sufficient to be faithful to this vow? Because if I don't keep this vow, something really, really bad is going to be happening to me. In fact, in Deuteronomy, the Lord made that same warning, giving them extra caution to think twice. In Deuteronomy 23, 21, he says this, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, well, it would not be sin then. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. He explained, you know, when you make a vow, it's binding. And it's going to come back on your head if you don't keep it. But then he says, you know, you don't have to vow. In fact, implied in that, you hear the voice of God saying, maybe you ought to think twice about it, actually. Maybe I'll just stay away from the whole practice because it seems to me like it's all downside. It's all risk. You're getting nothing out of this opportunity because you can never sin by avoiding making vows, but you put yourself in a serious position of jeopardy if you do. Because now you're betting that all the circumstances of life that happen from this point forward, you can control well enough to ensure that you can keep your side of the bargain you made with God. That's a pretty risky bet. When you consider that we don't know the future and God does, and we certainly don't control it, and yet we're so determined to get something our way that we're willing to put our neck on the line? That's why in the New Testament, Jesus says, don't make vows at all. Just act in a trustworthy and reliable way in all your manners, and all your dealings. He says in the Beatitudes on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 33, Again, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You shall not make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes is yes, or no is no, anything beyond this is of evil. Now he's not contradicting the law at all. He's simply explaining that when you make promises by swearing vows to God, you're moving into a space of evil. And what he means by that is it's evil because in the end, our sinful hearts will most often lead us to promise things we can't or shouldn't deliver. So the very fact that we're speaking in these terms of absolutes sets us up for a fall. Or, you know, there's the potential you're going to be tempted to just go back on your word. You're just going to give up the whole vow, right, when it doesn't turn out the way you want. Either way, evil is the outcome. And so he's saying don't make a vow, just be reliable and you won't have to make a vow. Now, all of that is in the law, meaning it was all provided through Moses well before Jephthah's time. So it was within Jephthah's ability to know these things, to have heard these things. But it doesn't seem as though Jephthah knows the word of God, or at least the heart of God on these matters, because he has missed all the warnings about rash vows. And in this case, he probably makes the most ill-advised vow in all scripture. It's it's often seen as such. It's, It's a memorable moment in the negative sense. He declares, and this is what he vows, he's prepared to kill something or someone without considering who that person might be. Maybe he assumed that the first out of the tent would be an animal or maybe a slave. But whatever he was assuming, his mouth here is getting getting himself into serious trouble. And in this case, what he vows is that if the Lord gives him victory in this battle that he's about to face, he will literally sacrifice to the Lord whoever walks out of that tent and meets him upon his return. And friends, don't misunderstand what he was saying. This vow understood that habitation, even in their day, did not have animals running through the living room. These people were not living like barbarians. You did not have cows and sheep roaming through your house routinely. You had barns, you had stables for them. I think we tend to make history look like cavemen, anything past about the year 1700. That's just fictitious history. That's not real history. The sophistication of men, even in ancient times, blows our mind even now. We still don't know how they did things like build the pyramids, for example, with whatever tools we knew were available in that day. We couldn't repeat it today if we tried with what they were working with, without power tools and electricity and hydraulics. But they did it. So when he says, out of my house, he's not thinking animals. I don't know what he's thinking, but he hasn't precluded the potential of a human being. That's the depravity of the heart that's coming out here in this moment. It's more likely, in fact, that a person would be the first out of his home to greet him than it would be an animal. And they didn't have cats and dogs. So Jephthah is essentially promising to sacrifice a human being to the Lord. Now, what causes him to say such a thing? Well, probably a combination of his impulsive nature, prophesied by his name, And a complete misunderstanding of God. Because his vow suggests that he sees Yahweh in the same way that pagans of their day would view their own gods. And we would expect some of this, right? Because the whole reason they've been under the oppression of the Ammonites in the first place is because the whole nation had moved into the direction of idol worship. So that culture is there. Pagan gods, in the way they were seen by their worshippers, were capricious They were unpredictable, they were uncaring, they were demanding, they were often cruel. You know, they would stop the rain and they would do this and they would do that. And so we had to sacrifice some more to get them happy again. And that was the attitude you brought to pagan worship. 
And as a result, it appears Jephthah has brought that thinking into his relationship with the Lord at this point. And so he's assuming, unless I can appease this capricious God, I don't have a hope to win this next battle. The living God has demanded righteousness from us and obedience from us. But he is not cruel. He is not uncaring. He does not dispense his mercy on a transactional basis. You're not going to get some measure of his mercy as you do something good today and another measure of his mercy as you do something good tomorrow. Our relationship with our God is not a quid pro quo basis. You have nothing to offer him he needs. Even your obedience is an obligation of worship. It's not something he benefits from in the sense that you are helping him. Our relationship with God is first and foremost based on the mercy we have through Christ because of his work, our faith being in that work and in the sacrifice he made. Everything after that is our obligation of service, Paul says. So it's no longer a transaction. The transaction was done on the cross. Now we're serving a master who bought us. Jephthah had that same relationship pre-sacrifice through faith as well, but his attitude of what it looked like to serve this God is is a terribly distorted one. And as a result... His flawed thinking has led him to make one of the stupidest vows you could ever make. One of the most foolish vows you could ever make. He tried to negotiate with Ammon. Now he's trying to negotiate with God. Scripture makes clear God doesn't negotiate. Even when it appears that God would entertain offers, like Abraham interceding for Lot, for example, or Moses interceding for Israel, when you go back and look at those stories, you can tell that the end of it all is exactly as God had it planned. Nothing ever really changed. The only thing that changed in those conversations was he molded the thinking of his servant. He didn't actually change his own behavior. I think you've heard me use the analogy in here before of praying to God is like being in a boat tied to the shore and pulling on the rope. The shore doesn't move, you do, right? That's the nature of how prayer works in your life as well. Be careful about turning prayer into a negotiation, making deals, making vows. God is not looking for advice. God is not looking for suggestions. God has a plan. Negotiating with God is just another way of trying to work your own plan instead of yielding to His. Jephthah has already been given the plan, right? He has the Spirit of God. He has the army. He has the revealed purpose of God to go in and destroy Ammon. But he won't rest in that. So what does he say? He says, I need to feel control of these circumstances. I need to force the outcome. I know what I'll do. I'll bind God with this vow. Having made this vow, the die is cast. And so he goes into war. We'll look back at what God's thinking here in a minute. Let's just go with where these circumstances go next. Verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Arior to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as abel Karim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Notice verse 32. He's made a vow. The very next thing you see is he moves forward, he wins the battle. But what is missing? You don't see the Lord make any comment regarding the vow. There's no response from God. The Lord has a plan. The Spirit's working to move that plan forward. He'll do it with or without the vow. That's the problem with vows. They don't obligate the Lord. Think about that for a minute. When you make a vow with God, you're the only one agreeing to do anything. The Lord never has to agree to a vow. They only obligate us. And the Lord may choose to answer your vow in the affirmative, or He may choose to answer it in the negative. In other words, the thing you're asking from Him, He may say yes, He may say no, irrespective of your vow. But the point is, you're obligated either way. That's why vows are so dumb. You're obligated if it turns out the way you want, but He's not obligated to give you what you want. 
So he's got all the control. What he's going to do is what he's going to do anyway. You've just put your vow on the table to force your own hand into something you now can't change. In this case, the Lord always intended to grant the victory. We know that because that's why the Spirit came upon Japheth. And then as he crosses over, he wins the battle. And as you hear, 20 cities. And, and really, this is the end of Ammon becoming a significant enemy to Israel in their history. This was already going to happen. God delivered his people as he promised. But now, because of what Jephthah did in his vow, the focus of the story turns to the outcome of his vow. Verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mitzvah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So as we feared, the first out of the tent was a person, his daughter, his only child. And based on Jephthah's vow, he is now obligated to kill his only daughter. Or so he thought. He takes one look at her, and he goes into mourning. He declares that he has given his word to the Lord, and therefore he cannot take it back. And that is true in the sense that you cannot take back a vow. You know, you don't issue vows with your fingers crossed and then change your mind at the end. It's set. The vow stands. Now you see the foolishness, right, of him making that vow. He promised something that depended on a certain future outcome, and he lacked the ability to control the future, so he was making a commitment without knowing where it was going to lead. How much better would it have been for him just to rely on the Lord's Spirit and said, you, you will do what you will will? His ignorance of God and his ignorance of the Word of God has put him in this position. And ironically, his ignorance is also responsible for leading him to go through with it all. Because Jephthah did not know, apparently, in the law there is a way out of a vow that God permits. If you make a payment, a ransom of a certain amount, you can get out from under a vow, according to Scripture. Leviticus chapter 27 says this, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, I think this one qualifies, he shall be valued, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels, and it goes on from there, talking about the valuations of children and slaves and so on. What these valuations refer to are the value you assign to somebody in that culture when you were paying a dowry or when you were buying a slave or hiring a worker. What are these people worth in terms of their ability to support the needs of a family or a household? What the Lord has said is, if you have made a vow in which one of these people's life is at risk, you can buy them back. You just have to pay the amount. All Jephthah needed to do was pay the ransom, and his daughter would have been free from the penalty. Now, he would have lost the money because of his vow, but that's fair. God's made that accommodation. As we've said here in the past, God has no interest in seeing a human being sacrificed. He's never asked for it. He'll never accept it. It's not according to his will. There's no joy in it. He doesn't receive such an offering. He expects that a vow be met with a ransom payment, not that a person's life be lost. That's why he has it in his law in Leviticus 27. But remember, the mistake in this situation is not the Lord's. The mistake is entirely Jephthah's. He made the vow, not the Lord. He doesn't have to carry through with it. If he only knew the word, he wouldn't have made the vow in the first place. Or, at least, he would have known he could have ransomed out his daughter. But since he doesn't know the word of the Lord, except to know that he has to keep his vow, that part he, I guess he's figured out, 
then he thinks the only choice he has is to kill his daughter or he could break his vow. But what is the penalty for breaking the vow? The same is required of him, the Lord said. So in reality, folks, you know what he's choosing between, at least in his mind. I die or my daughter dies. Sorry, honey. So that gives you another insight into his heart. He made a rash vow that put his daughter's life at risk, and now I guess she dies. Once the daughter learns that her father has made this vow, she responds with faith. Look at verse 36. She said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity and I and my companions. Then he said, Go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made. And she had no relations with the man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gilead, four days in the year. There's a lot of controversy about this passage, at least for some, because the whole notion of what's happening here just seems so abhorrent to us that it's compelled some to try to explain it away. And naturally, that's the way we'd all want to think about it, right? Maybe there's something else that explains this. Maybe, maybe it didn't exactly happen the way we think. But the text is pretty clear. He did everything to her exactly as he had vowed. What did he vow? That he would offer her up as a burnt offering, which is to say she was killed in some manner and her body burned, it would appear. And she is willing to subject herself to this vow because, as it appears in the text, she's more concerned with honoring the Lord than with holding on to her own life. But before the sentence is carried out, she asks, can I have at least a two-month delay in this verdict so I can mourn my virginity? What that means is mourning the fact that she will never have an opportunity to marry, never have an opportunity for children, which would have been the highest goal for a woman, generally in in those days, to have had the privilege of bringing children and raising children in, in the family. She'll miss out on that, obviously, so she has gone away to mourn with her women companions, to be specific, and come back after two months. She is probably the most Christ-like character you will find in the entire book of Judges. She's a person dedicated to trusting the Lord, serving no matter what the personal interests are, personal consequences are. She does it at great personal sacrifice. She remains pure in her devotion. And I think it's important that the writer emphasizes there at the end, she never lost her virginity. In other words, she doesn't seek for earthly pleasure at the risk of her virtue. And after her two months of mourning, she dutifully returns to submit to the will of the Father. And as a result, the people of Israel commemorate her personal faithfulness with that annual celebration. It probably went on for a time during this period of history. It's not done today as far as I know. Now, once more, there is no indication from Scripture that the Lord desired that this would happen, that He was pleased that this would happen. The whole tone, the whole nature of this passage makes it very clear that Japheth is acting in a sinful way, in a rash way. It's recorded for our knowledge not to endorse it, obviously. The entire story reveals the evil and ignorant heart of this man. Her death was not necessary. It was not even required by the Lord. The daughter's obedience is commendable, but it was unnecessary. And in the end, the death is a testimony to Japheth's sin, and his ignorance, and then secondarily to his daughter's piety. One commentator wrote, Although the present story ends with the death of the young girl, her father is the tragic figure, presenting a pathetic picture of stupidity, brutality, ambition, and self-centeredness. 
Ironically, the one who appeared to have become master of his own fate in making the vow has become a victim of his own rash word. That's a healthy thing to take away for all of the, just the angst you have when you read a story like this. Consider the lesson though in it. Sometimes when you think you're controlling your future, negotiating with God, making deals, making bargains, you're only setting up your own fall. If you rest in the Word, if you rest in your relationship with God in the goodness of Him through the Spirit, you, you'll find yourself in the right place eventually because God will bring you there one way or another. If you try to chart your own path, force, force your own hand, you'll get somewhere. You just may not like where you end up. But if you're reading this story and you're coming out of it with any conclusions about the Lord, don't place any of this at His feet. The Lord is silent, notably silent, throughout this story. It indicates to us He's not playing a part in these circumstances. And then lastly, I want you to notice again this steep decline in the culture in this time of Judges. We've said this for many times already. The time of Judges is 300 years of Israel just going deeper into a pit. But there's phases along that path. And we just reached a new phase. We reach a point now when the condition of women in the culture takes a nosedive. Remember earlier in Judges we noted that men had stopped leading within the culture. They had stepped back from their appointed roles as leaders in the family and in the nation. And as a result, women stepped forward to fill the vacuum, which was to their credit. But the very fact that women had to rule and lead over the men was an indictment of the men. Remember we covered that back in the time of Deborah and Barak. The effect of having weak men in the culture was a weak society overall, spiritually weak. And now you're 250 years later, more or less, And history in Israel is now confirming the dangers of what comes in a culture with weak men. Now you see the effect of it, right? Ironically, the last stage of decline, at least according to the book of Judges, is when men become spiritually weak and unfamiliar with the Lord and His Word, eventually the women begin to suffer the most. Instead of leading men out of darkness, they become victims of the darkness. Here you find a father willing to vow in advance to kill someone in his family, essentially. But later, you're going to have in this book women who are raped, killed, and dismembered by judges. Well, judges did the dismembering. Somebody else did the raping and killing. You're going to have 400 young women kidnapped, abducted from one city and sent to another. And then in retaliation, another group kidnapped and sent to another city. Women become, in this deteriorating culture, they're neglected, they're abused, and they become exploited. One, I think, is the product of the other. Weak men leave men, women to try to run the, the place in, in the absence of men being in the proper role with them and not to the discredit of the women at all, just to the burden of them. And then over time, the weakness of the men reasserts itself in sin and depravity to the extent that women now are the victims. And if you can't see that in the culture we live in today, you're not looking very hard. The culture we live in today is a culture that more or less mirrors some of these patterns. And it only reminds us that we are close to the end. For it can't get much worse. In both cases, both in the time of Judges and to some extent today, the Lord will respond, but His response isn't necessarily immediate. He has a plan and it has a timing all its own. And as Peter says, He's not slow about His promises, but He has a certain timing to them. And while we all await the Lord's return, we serve Him, we seek to please Him, but let's learn the lessons of Scripture as we seek to do that, which is, uh, instead of Japheth forgetting them, in this case, it's obey without negotiating. Resist taking matters into your own hands. 
Men, lead in your homes and in the church body. Women, serve by their side, submitted to the will of God. Lean on the Spirit, lean on the counsel of the Word, and live sacrificially knowing the Lord's prepared to make good things come from our obedience. It's a lot to think about, but it's a simple formula at the end of the day. We don't have to improve on it with a vow or promises we can't keep. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the reminder. It's stern, but it's, it's meaningful, Father, that we have often negotiated our way through a relationship that's only by faith and by your grace. Some of us negotiate in prayer. Father, some of us, uh, some of us negotiate in our lives and our actions. Doing good things when we need something from you, Father, and um, feeling, feeling punished when things don't go our way. And yet, Father, we know in Scripture that you are God of infinite mercy, infinite grace. You delight in obedience more than you do in sacrifice. And Father, you have asked us to serve you because you have saved us, not in order that we might secure your approval. Keep our hearts there, Father. Don't let the enemy turn it into a, a transaction where we can feel beat up and unqualified. And Father, forgive us for when we have tried to insert our own will in place of yours. We'll do it again, I'm sure, Father, because the flesh is weak, but we, we will seek to trust and rely on you all the more. And we ask that the Spirit in us would guide us into that walk of obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.